Thank you, guys. Band. Love it. You're awesome. Thank you for how you serve us. Uh, morning, everybody. My name is Jeremy, the pastor here. And I have another embarrassing story to tell you. You're welcome. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I moved from a private Montessori school to a public middle school. As you can imagine, that was a, a giant culture shock coming from uh, a graduating class of six people, three guys and three girls, to uh, a massive seventh grade middle school with uh, middle school class with probably, I don't know, upwards of 300 students. And so very quickly, I learned that I had to figure out some sort of identity. I had to figure out some sort of like, who am I going to be? What group am I going to find myself in? Because my group was that entire graduating class. And then very quickly, I learned that you can't have a group that's 300 people big. So each group in middle school, as you were probably aware, is defined most of the time by things that they have in common. So I looked at myself and I thought, well, I'm not sporty enough to be a jock. I don't like books that much to be a nerd. And so I decided to become a skater. In the back, holler for the skaters. Uh, so I bought, I bought the Spitfire board. I figured out how to turn a lighter into a flamethrower. That was cool. Um, I bought all the skater clothes that I could find. There was only one thing that, that my mom would not allow me to purchase. I wish I had a picture uh, behind me, but hopefully you can close your eyes and picture in your mind Jinko jeans. Can you, can you picture it? Are they a glorious sight? I feel like uh, I've seen recently that they may be making a comeback, like all other things in the 90s are kind of making a comeback right now. Uh, so maybe Jinkos just might be on the rise. Uh, they're these giant jeans. They're like this big. And, uh, and somehow, I'm not sure how you skate in those jeans because it feels very difficult to do anything uh, athletic in those. And I tried and I tried and I postured and I postured and I wore the clothes and I did my best. And there was only one problem. The like most basic move in the skateboarding uh, movement vocabulary is the ollie. I knew it in theory. I knew you kicked the back of the board back and then you jumped and then the board somehow magically levitated and then you slid your foot up and then you landed back on top of the board. And yet I could never do it. So I was a skater who couldn't ollie, which means I wasn't a skater. So I lasted for about six months and then I gave that up. Because life's too short to be somebody you're not. And I turned out, found out, I was not a skater. We're spending the next three weeks reflecting on our lives, using kind of this turn into 2023, uh, as many of us, I'm sure, in our own ways, in our families, in our private lives, in our work lives, all of those things are kind of taking assessment over who are we, what matters, and am I living in line with what really matters, and how do I shape my life for the next year based on that? So a way that you may have heard sort of a summary of all of our life be broken down is our time, our talent, and our treasures. And so those are the three things over these three weeks. Last week we talked about how do we steward our time, recognizing that our time is short. In the big scheme of history, our time here is very short. Today, 
uh, we're focusing on our talent. How do we structure and steward who we are, who God has made us to be, recognizing, again, life is short. And we're coming out of Matthew 25, where Jesus teaches that there's actually two different ways that we could go out. There's two different ways that our, li- ways that our lives could be shortened. One is we die and go to be with Jesus. The other is that Jesus returns and comes to be with us. And that's the context that Matthew 25 is, uh, is, finds itself in. And there's two of these stories that Jesus tells called parables that he tells kind of in that understanding of what will it be like? How do we live our lives with the reality that at any moment, he says, he could come back? Uh, we ended last week with that command of watch be watchful, which translated that word just means stay awake. Be awake to the, re- the real reality, not whatever reality we may have been born into, not whatever reality we may have sort of constructed in our own minds, but to come back and say, is the Bible really what it says it is? And if it is, if it's really true, how do I begin to shape my life according to that truth and reality? Last week, though, he didn't tell us much of what to do. He just said, like, be ready, be watchful, be aware. This week, he begins to tell us, okay, then how do I actually live my life? What does it look like to do that? So to do that, he tells us a story, uh, and that is the story or the parable of the talents. And so I believe Adrian Pedersen is going to come and read that story. Thanks be to God. Can we leave that Romans 12 one verse up for a minute? This, this series is really framed around this verse, uh, and we're calling it present for that reason. And so, again, under the assumption that there is a God, that this is his written down word for us, that he does both create us and redeem us and now call us to live a becoming life to him, then how do we do that? What we're saying is that the best way that we do that is the one who created us, we want to give our life back to him and say, help us. You made this thing, so now help me know how to use this thing. How how do I use this person that you have made me? How do I use this life that you have given me? How do I use these gifts and talents that you have given to me? And so we present that back to him this morning, uh, our time, our self, and who we are. So summary of today might be stay engaged. Life is short. What we're going to do is break down this parable into kind of two key questions. With some of Jesus' parables, it's hard to know, like, how analytical do I have to be? Does this mean this or does this mean that? What is a talent? How do I then apply that to my own life? And there can be a pretty big jump from the story that he's telling to applying it to our life. So we're going to dial back and we're going to ask two main questions. One, faithful investment of talents. What is it? What does it mean to to faithfully invest my talents according to this passage? And secondly, a bit of a self-reflective question, am I doing it? What is it? Am I doing it? 
So first, what is it? What is faithful investment of talents according to this passage? I'm not even going to say anything. Okay. So <clears throat> let's, let's jump into the parable and start to, to maybe define some terms here. I think there's, there's two main things that we have to understand in order to apply this correctly to our lives. The first is the word talent in this context is not the word talent that you and I typically use. Interestingly, the word talent that you and I typically use, its etymology or it's kind of the way it became a word goes back to this passage. Uh, but what it means in this context is something different. All it means in this context is money. It is literally a, it's either a weight, a measure, or a sum of money. In this context, for the original hearers, they would have heard something along the lines of about 6,000 drachmas which would mean about 20 years of a day laborer's wage, which would mean somewhere in the neighborhood of $600,000. One talent, $600,000. So to kind of translate that into our understanding, the, the one talent and the two talents and the five talents that are being given, these are massive sums of money. So even though one talent may sound like, oh, that's not very much, and then that guy ends up losing it in the end anyways. Man, he must not have been trusted with that much. No, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $600,000 that he was being given. So these are massive sums of money there to being talked about. Secondly, the, the four characters that exist in this story are one, a boss, and then three of his servants. So that's important to understand because the way we apply this text will very much hinge on that. Because... This guy obviously is a boss because he got a bunch of money. Uh, they didn't have the internet. There was no way to like check your stocks online. There was no way to Facebook your friends and make sure that everything was going well back on the homestead. And so the way that managers of their households would handle that at times if they had to, for whatever reason, he's making a journey. And so as he makes this journey, in the same way a venture capitalist would say invest in a new barbecue restaurant in South Nashville that should go somewhere in that Creve Hall bagel complex, I'd be there all the time. If, if a venture capitalist were to invest in said barbecue business, then they would want not only when they came back, they wouldn't only want like, hey, I invested a mill in this, just give me that back. No. Why do you invest in something? You want a return. You want a reward. You want a profit or an increase. That's what's happening here. That's why the, the boss may come off a little harsh in the first reading of that. But to understand that, one, these three servants do not own this stuff. It says that he entrusted to them his property, personal pronoun, his property given to these servants to steward and care for for a particular time until he returns. And the goal of that is to make a profit. Now, with those two things out of the way, we can begin to understand what's really going on in the passage. So, this man goes on a journey. He gives one guy five talents, which is somewhere around $3 million. He gives another guy two talents, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.2 million. He gives another guy one talent, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of $600,000. And then he goes away. And all it says is he's gone for a long time. 
And so there probably somewhere in that period of time is lots of opportunity for gains, lots of opportunity for losses, lots of opportunity for, I mean, imagine being handed $600,000 or 1.2 or 5 mil or whatever it is and having to figure out what in the world am I going to do with this? Massive amount of money, especially in this context. First guy doubles it, returns it, double. To, takes five, gives back 10. Second guy takes two, returns four. Last guy takes one, buries it in the ground. That sounds sort of weird. Actually, more of a common practice in that day, definitely, than it is now. It does remind me a little bit of pirates, which is kind of fun. But the, the idea, kind of like you would bury it under a mattress, it's that kind of idea. Banks were not what they are today. They didn't have the FDIC and all of those things. So many people, to save their money, to secure their funds, they would bury it in the ground or hide it somewhere so it could be very safe. And that's understandable because the last thing you want is for you to end up, maybe I misplaced that 600000 Not sure how you would do that necessarily, but the last thing you would want to do is to lose. And so he plays it safe. When the owner comes back, the boss comes back to settle accounts, he is so pumped. Servant one, you nailed it. Great job. Well done. Servant two, you nailed it. Great job. Well done. Servant three, how dare you? Which again, may initially come across as harsh, but remember, the boss gave them his property with a particular goal to increase its value. And what the guy did was nothing. He didn't even try. He's afraid, and he buries it. So how do we begin to take this and apply this to our daily life? Because last time I checked, nobody's given anybody in here a cool five mil and said, go do something with it. Maybe, that'd be super cool. But how do we begin to apply this to our everyday life? I think at least three things, uh, these begin to teach us at least these three points. One, this says something about who God is. This, this begins to paint a picture of God as creator and owner of all things. This very much harkens back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And like a Lego master builder, he can make anything out of it that he wants. He can make a double-decker couch or anything he wants for all of you Lego movie people. And he owns, our, he owns us because he owns this creation. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The earth is his footstool. He owns it all. This also says something about us. That if, if that's who God is, then who are we? If he is the creator, then we are what? The created. The creation. He has sovereignly set us at this particular moment, he has sovereignly made you exactly, uniquely, particularly you. He, he has set you in your birth order. If you're a middle child, a, a, a third child, an a only child, he has set all of that up purposefully, perfectly. He's given you your experiences over the course of your life, your opportunities, your personality, your abilities, your gifting, your talent, all of those things. He has created that. He has created you. 
then not only that in sort of an, uh, a grand scale, but also a very micro scale. Genesis 1 verse 26 goes on to say that when God created us, unlike anything else he created, he utters these words. Let us make man in our image. Nothing else in all of creation gets those words attached to it. We may see a beautiful sunset and say, oh, I see God in that sunset. We may be on a, a beautiful river or lake and say, oh, I see God in this place. Yes, that is true. These things declare the glory of God. But even more glorious than any of those things is the person sitting right next to you. They image God in a more glorious way than any other thing, any other created thing could. Like, for instance, all three of my kids have my nose. It, it bends up just a little bit. It's a little bit small. And all three of my kids, it was given straight from me to them. You're welcome, children. Uh, we do all parts of us, I'm sorry, all parts of God are not imaged in us. There's too much of God. God is too glorious, too wonderful, too powerful, too strong, too beautiful for any one of us to capture every bit of that glory. But that means each one of us is not the whole picture, but each one of us is a part of that picture. There is something about each one of you in this room, young and old. There's something about each one of you that uniquely images the glory of God. That begins to create a dignity within us that we're not accidents. We haven't just been spun into this world in some sort of cosmic accident, but we have been made, handmade by a creator, then given a job to do. He goes on to say, this not only tells us something about God, something about us, it tells us something about our life. We are made to then invest. <clears throat> if he is the creator, we are the created. We are then made and given a particular role and a particular job to do. To move two verses later, Genesis 1:28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Sounds like the owner, doesn't it? Multiply what I've given you. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Take a chunk of creation and rip it off and make something beautiful or make something useful or make something helpful to the glory of God and the good of the people around you. That gets narrowed even more by Jesus when he comes onto the scene. He says there's two big categories that we live distinctly as believers in Christ. The first is we are as, as people. This is all people being called to do two things primarily, love God and love neighbor. He then goes on to say that in Matthew 28, you not only love God and love neighbor yourself, but you're also constantly in pursuit of helping other people do the same, making disciples who love God and love neighbor in the same way you do. Is this the big framework with which you view your life? Uh, is there a consistent consideration that there is a part of me that if I was not here, that if I was not a part of this family unit, that if I was not a part of this workplace, that if I was not a part of this church, something would be missing because I am not here because I bring a particular part and parcel of the image of God to bear on it. 
There is a purpose that you can wake up with every morning if this is your reality. I'm always reminded, and I love this little quote uh, in the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, the story of Eric Liddell, real guy. He was a, a runner. He set a world record at the 1924 Paris Olympics in the 400, uh, which was a race that he was not even supposed to run. Uh, he was training for another race until he found out as a Christian uh, that race was on Sunday on the Sabbath, and he felt the conviction that he could not run uh, because it was a, a work that he felt he was doing, and so he could not do that work on the Sabbath. And so he trains very quickly at the last minute for the 400 instead. And his sister is getting on to him uh, about that he's spending so much time training for this race, and he's not serving God, as if those two things are completely separate. They may be, but this is his response. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. His story ended up impacting many people as they watched a devoted Christian compete at such a high level, win the Olympics, and then right after that, drop off the face of the earth, move to China, become a missionary. Because he was living his life uniquely and distinctly. He knew that there was something about himself that uniquely imaged God in his running. He also knew that he had been bought with a price and called to a purpose to be and make disciples. And in this image is also the same question that we can ask ourselves. What, when you do it, do you feel God's pleasure? What is something unique to you that when you do it, there is something that begins to build in your chest, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of, of, of great exhale, of great joy, that I can't believe I get to do this. What might that be for you? Could it be that God is peeking through you in that moment, showing himself to the world? Okay, that's what faithfully steward, stewarding our talents might look like. The second question then is more self-reflective. Am I doing it? Are we doing it? I, I slowed down and I zoomed in on the, that first chapter of Genesis. And you may have heard that a billion times or this may be new for you, but I want to slow down and consider that because most of the time where I see my heart going and where I see the heart of many other people going is not more into that glorious reality, but further away from it. I see most of us despising who we are and wishing we were somebody else. If I only had, if I only could, if I'd only been born in that family and not this one, if I'd only had that amount of, of inheritance and not this one, if I was only funny, if I was only smart, if I was only good looking, if I was only sporty, if I was only, if I was only, if I was only. I had a, a pastor friend of mine in Lakeland who used to ask the question, do you love being you? If not, why not? Getting at that heart of, have you been uniquely hand-designed? And do you delight in yourself as much as God delights in you? Because verse 15 does 
say something about how he has made us. Because it says that he gave those talents, they're different. And he gave those talents according to each's ability. He gave to one five, he gave to one two, he gave to one one. Like every time I take a personality test, I want to keep pushing it towards all the fun things that I want to be more than just resting in the reality of who I actually am. I'm a three, not a seven. Okay. I want to be the fun guy, but I'm just a workhorse. Okay. Whatever that is, I I find my heart and maybe you find your heart swaying away from believing that who you actually are right now is enough to impact those around you, to lead your family, to love your spouses, to care for your children, to work at your workplace, to impact this city. But most of us pull back. Most of us, for one reason or another, pull back and hide the real me because I want to posture. I want to make sure you like me first. Or I want to make sure that I match my own expectations of myself. And if I can't match match and meet those expectations, I'm just going to do nothing. Because the ultimate question that this parable begs is, why didn't the third servant invest? What was it that made him hide? And maybe if we can understand that, we might understand a little bit more about our hearts. Why do we hide? Why do we pull back from what God might be calling us to live fully humanly as we are? Verse 24 goes on to say, because I knew you to be a hard man. And so I was afraid. If we believe God to be a hard man, an exacting, harsh judge who created us and now moment by moment watches over us, making sure we don't break the rules. If that's who we believe God to be, then that will create a certain amount of fear and anxiety and trepidation inside of us. We'll be afraid of offering our, the real self of ours to anybody because what if we don't match up? What if we don't get it right? What if it's like there's 10 degrees of perfection and I only hit nine of them? But to go back to Genesis 1, there's also a partial truth that the third servant is believing. There is something true about his statement here. Because as the creator, God has the right to tell his creation who they should be and what they should do. He has a right to, when he returns, to ask for an assessment of how have you lived your life? He has a right to ask those piercing questions about what were the motive motives and motivations of your heart? What did you spend your time doing? Was it pushing more and more into the glorious reality of relationship with me and loving your neighbor? Or was it more and more pulling back into self? That's the tension we always feel. And that question is true and real. And It tells of a time, this parable tells of a time when the master returns and asks for an account and for those who have lived unfaithfully, there will be a sending away. This this picture of hell, a sending away from relationship with God. 
But here's what we have to remember about this passage. All of that that I have just said is part of God's character. He is a just judge. But remember when, what this parable is about. Where this parable finds itself is Jesus is talking about a time when people will read this and hear this story later on after he has lived, died, resurrected again, sitting at the right hand of the Father now, and then people will hear this passage. And they will begin to reflect maybe differently than if we were hearing this before his life, death, and resurrection. Because before Jesus left this earth, he came to this earth. And he came to this earth to do a a very particular work. He is very God of very God, as the creed says about him. He brings all of the characteristics of the glory of God to bear. He is all strength. He is all beauty. He is all wisdom. He is all glory. And he brings that to bear on this world as a baby. And then he grows up for 30 years, and then for three, he pours himself out, pours himself out, pours himself out, laying down his life, loving and doing exactly what his father God tells him to do, and loving his neighbor in every possible way that he can. He perfectly invests his life. He returns back a hundredfold on what he has been given. And yet at the very end of his life, Look back at what the master says to the third servant. At the very end of his life, what words should he hear as one who has perfectly lived? Well done, good and faithful servant. What words does Jesus hear? You wicked, you slothful servant. away. I can't even be around you. This relationship with this father that he has always had for all eternity past now is ripped apart and broken. Why did he hear those words? Because we are the unfaithful servants. None of us, no not one, is faithful. None of us have stewarded our life for the five or the two or the one talent we've been given. None of us in our own power can steward that thing. Every one of us will let it slip through our fingers. Every one of us will squander it for ourselves. Every one of us will hold back, except Jesus. And so now, the commendation from the first and the second servant, well done, good and faithful servant that Jesus should have gotten, now by faith in him, we have. And so now on this side of the cross, awaiting his return, we can now live under the well done, good and faithful, well done, not because of what you have done, not because of what you will do, but because of what Jesus has done. Well done. And so as we begin to live and hear that well done, as we trust in Christ, saying, I can't steward this life well enough. You must steward this life for me. You must live this perfect life. I take it, and I give you my dirty one. I give you my unfaithful one. Then the crazy thing that begins to happen as we live in that and under that well done 
as we begin to, to live that same life of Jesus, because now Ephesians 4 says that when Jesus ascended, gifts came down, spirit came down. And now the Holy Spirit, the same one that empowered him to do all that stuff, now lives and breathes and dwells in us. Because to open up the real us in real life is real risky. To, to walk into and not away from those places where we want security, but instead we choose service is risky every time. It's gonna cost us something every time. And Jesus says, yes, that's what I made you for. Break off these chunks of creation. Make something beautiful out of it. Love somebody else out of it. And as you do, you will glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as we close, I just ask you that question again. What, when you do it, do you feel God's pleasure? It could be cooking. It could be serving. It could be leading. It could be working the spreadsheets. It could be running. It could be gardening. It could be a whole host of things. We love God by embracing who he has made us to be and continuing to live more and more into that reality, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, into the holiness that the Bible calls us to, and then living more and more into the reality and leveraging the real us to love somebody else. So what would it look like if every one of us got to pick the most fun thing that we love to do more than anything else. And we got to walk out the doors this week and we got to think, how could I use that? That place that I feel the most pleasure from the Lord. I want to go out and I want to use that for the sake of somebody else. How could 200 people sitting in this room, walking back out into all of their workplaces, all of their neighborhoods, even one another in this church, as we continue to live and, uh, and dwell with each other, what would it look like? How could our city be impacted by that kind of freedom that kind of well-doneness that begins to more and more open us up to what the Lord might call us to do and to walk into the riskiness and the unsurety of what that might look like and trusting him all the way through to be faithful. Let's pray. So Father, we ask for your kind of courage and your kind of boldness. Uh, I love the song that we just sang, that we need you that you are the great provider, you are the great healer, you are the, the great lover. And when we look at our past week, when we look at even this morning, when we look at our hearts right now, we see all of the ways we fall short. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you, in all of the reasons you had not to love us, you have pushed through those with your very own death and loved us in spite of ourselves. Holy Spirit, help that to more and more settle on our hearts. And as it sits on our hearts, would we open up and walk forward and toward your great glory and the good of our neighbor, that Creve Hall, that South Nashville, uh, that our city and state and country and world would reflect you more and more. Be filled with joy because your people are joyfully pursuing everything that you've called us to and who you've made us to be. We pray in Christ. 